Man, I've really enjoyed this series that we're going through throughout the book of, of Romans. And, and specifically, I enjoyed the last couple of weeks listening to Pastor Judah and, and Pastor Manny uh, preach through their respective chapters. And, and I don't know if you've realized this, but I've realized this in the last couple of weeks that here at Multiply Church, we are blessed to have different communicators that are passionate about the Word of God, love the Word of God, and that communicate differently. What I love about our pastors is that we all, we all communicate differently. I'm going to communicate differently than Pastor Manny. Pastor Manny's going to communicate differently than Pastor Judah. And, and what we've realized as a staff is our goal isn't to spiritually feed you every week. Let, let that sink in for a second. The pastor isn't here to spoon feed you every single week. If you're only getting your walk with Christ on a Sunday morning through whomever's communicating, then we're not doing it right as a church. Our goal as pastors are to set you on a direction of discovery. I know we've been going through the book of Romans and and each week, the pastors kind of pull out a few verses and, and a few major concepts, but we can't practically get through everything in, in an entire chapter. We can't give you all of the information up front. And, and what we're asking you to do is to go back and, and dive into those chapters throughout the week as well. There's this fallacy that the quantity of scripture you read makes you more spiritual. It's like, oh, last, last week I read five chapters on Monday and, and this past Monday I only read a chapter. So two weeks ago I was more spiritual because I read more. And I've had to get that concept even out of my head. You know, you, you have those Bible reading plans. Let me read through the Bible in a year. And those, those plans are good. They're warranted. They're needed. I think that you can utilize those. But man, it's okay to pause and to spend some time on a chapter or on a few verses as well. So we don't have to feel like we have to rush through everything each and every week. So if you feel like we're missing something or you want to dive into it more, man, dive into it. Shoot me an email, shoot me a text. I'd love to get your thoughts and, and, and what, what God's revealing to you through scripture as well. So here we go, Romans chapter nine. And we have to remember that at this point, Paul hasn't visited Rome yet. And this book was actually written like a letter. Now, many theologians would say that the book of Romans in its entirety is actually broken down into seven major sections. Now, today, I want to take an approach that's a little different than we've had the past few weeks. And I want to talk about the nation of Israel and how and why Paul references Israel so much and, and where we see the correlation throughout Scripture. And in Romans chapter 9, Paul starts out with some strong rhetorical questions. He makes some definitive statements, and, and, he, and he's absolutely heartbroken at the beginning of chapter 9. But he set this chapter up with chapters 1 through 8. So if you think back to 1 through 8, Paul thoroughly convinced us that, that, a, that man's need is for God's glorious provision through Jesus Christ, which is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And the past two weeks, Pastor Manny and Pastor Judah preached on Romans chapter 7 and, and Romans chapter 8. And in Romans 7, there was this resounding anthem that God has delivered humanity from sin. Yet we're reminded of this back and forth, this push and pull of following Jesus and still struggling with sin in our day-to-day -day life. And then in Romans chapter 8, Paul reminds us that there's no condemnation in Jesus. 
that the law wasn't written for salvation because nobody can keep the law perfectly except for Jesus. So what's the law used for? The law is used to expose sin and uphold God's holiness. The Bible is there. The law is there so that our sin might be revealed that we can repent. The worst thing about sin in your life isn't that you have it. It's that you try to hide it. If we have sin, we're called to expose it. And at the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul leaves us at this epitome of glory when he says these words. He says, nothing can separate us from God. Yet we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he ends chapter 8 with verse 38 and 39. And Paul writes this. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let those words resonate in your mind for just a second. There is nothing, I'm convinced that neither death nor life can separate me from God. I'm convinced that nothing in creation can separate me from God. I'm convinced that the future, nor any powers, nor the height, nor the depth, there's nothing in all of creation, Paul writes, that can separate us from God. And then the letter starts to make a shift in Romans chapter 9. Those are definitive statements. And then Paul starts talking to the religious skeptic. And he starts talking to the individuals who are questioning who this guy named Jesus really was. And Paul deals with these problems associated with the condition of Israel as a whole. Paul says that Israel missed the Messiah. What does that even mean? What does that say about God? What does that say about Israel? What does that say about our present position in our relationship with God? One commentator posed it like this. The question goes something like this. How can I be secure in God's love and salvation to me when it seems that Israel was once loved and saved, but now seems to be rejected and cursed? Will God also reject and curse me one day? Have you ever felt like that in your walk with Jesus? I can't give it all to Jesus. I can't give it all because if I give it all, one day I'm going to let him down and one day he's going to reject me like he rejected Israel. And that's what Paul's writing about. He's writing to that ideology. He's writing to that thought process. How how can I fully trust God if he let Israel down? If he cast Israel to the side, is he going to do that with me one day? Is he going to curse me one day? Is he going to cast me out one day? I don't know if you've ever asked hard questions in life. I don't know if you've ever questioned the existence of God. I don't know if you've ever really kind of looked up towards the heavens and go, God, are you even really there? Can I remind us that God can handle our hard questions? God can handle your skeptic thoughts. God can handle your doubt. God can handle your anger. God can handle whatever emotion arises in you. Even in our doubt, God still made a way through Jesus. And that's what Paul is pointing to in Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. Again, 1 through 8, he identifies sin. 
But then he ends chapter eight, you're more than conquerors. There's nothing that can separate you from God. And in chapter nine, it's almost as if he's answering the question of, yeah, how do you really know that, Paul? How do you really know that God is even there? How do you really know that God is for me? He says, hey, keep reading. Keep reading chapter nine. Keep reading chapter 10. Keep reading chapter 11. Isn't that the question that the world typically asks? Hey, how do you really know? Have you ever been in a conversation like that? You can nod your head at me if that's been you, but I've been in a conversation with you. How do you really know that God is even there? How, how do you really know that he can save me? How do you really know that he can forgive me of this stuff called sin? How do you know? And Paul starts to write in chapter nine, again, even in our doubt, God still made a way. Now chapters nine, 10, and 11 are broken into three sections. And we're gonna dive into that first section in chapter nine today. And, and I would challenge you to go back and read verses six through 29 specifically, because in those verses, Paul is addressing Israel's privilege as God's chosen people. What does it mean to be God's chosen people? Specifically pointing to the remnant or the individuals who are still truly following Jesus. So Paul, starting in chapter nine, addresses these religious skeptics. A religious person that was looking for someone to, to come in and overthrow the Roman government, not someone to come in riding on a colt. One commentator named Morris writes, if God cannot bring his ancient people into salvation, how do Christians know that he can save them? Paul is not here proceeding to a new and unrelated subject. These three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, are part of the way he makes plain how God can in fact save his people. Again, that's the question that the world keeps asking. How do Christians know that they know that they know that God can save them? How can you and I confidently answer the question, Jesus is with you and for you. He died on a cross. He was buried. He conquered hell, death, and the grave. He rose three days later, and he's coming back. How can we confidently say that? Paul says, hey, keep, keep reading. So let's start off in chapter 9 with verse 3. And Paul says this, for I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren, for my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and his promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. This isn't the first time in scripture that we see this thought process. We can actually go back. And, and I think Paul's reflecting back to the book of Exodus. And we read in Exodus chapter 32, starting with verse 31. And it reads like this. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray God blot me out of your book, which you have written. In chapter nine, Paul's reflecting and, and he starts by saying he would remove himself from his relationship with Christ if that meant all of Israel would be saved. It's those if then statements. I don't know if you're like me, but man, I would do anything for my family. Fellas in the room, dads in the room, husbands in the room. I don't know. I'll just say it like this. I have if then statements that go through my head all the time. 
if someone breaks into my house, then I will respond like this. Any, anybody else in the room? Am I the only crazy one? I'll put it this way. If someone breaks into my house, then I have a nine millimeter beside my bed. If they start to walk up this, I don't know if I can say this in church, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> if they start to walk up the steps, then I can shoot my hollow points through this drywall and it won't go into the girls' rooms. No, nobody else thinks like that, just me. Uh, man, okay, people that don't do the gun thing. Um, <laughs> if I'm driving down the interstate and I see a wreck and the car flips over, then I'll stop and help them out of the car. If I'm in a convenience store and it gets robbed, then I will respond this way. I have these if, and my if then statements can run wild. Anybody else? If the zombie apocalypse happens, then I will. No, okay. If they're World War Z zombies, we're in trouble. All right. Some of y'all will get that reference later. If they're walking dead zombies, I'm good for at least three days. I got to worry about knuckleheads, not the zombies. You know what I'm saying? It's those if-then statements. And that's what Paul is saying. If I could give my life so that you could follow Jesus, then I would. His heart is absolutely broken. If I could, then I would. Again, Paul, Paul's heart was broken because he knew that the religious skeptics of the day were on their way to hell. Now, remember who Paul's writing to. He's actually writing to some of his colleagues. Think back, who was Paul before he was Paul? He was Saul. Remember that before he was called Paul, his name was actually Saul. And in the book of Acts chapter 8, he's the one that approved the stoning of Stephen. You've heard this before, maybe in messages that, that Paul killed Christians. And, and that's what the Bible is referencing, that he, he's the one that approved the stoning of Stephen. Let that sink in for a second. Some of us in the room, myself included, we think we're too far gone for, for God to use. We think we've sinned too much. And, and I have to remind myself, myself that that's nonsense because Paul was literally killing Christians. Yet he is widely known as one of the greatest missionaries that humanity has ever seen and wrote 13 books of the Bible. And you think you're too far gone. And I think I'm too far gone. The dude was a murderer. Killing Christians. And God used him. What happened? What changed? He encountered Jesus. And his life radically changed. And we see that transformation in chapter 9. For I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ. I'll remove myself from Jesus. For my brothers. For my countrymen. For the nation of Israel. His heart broke for his colleagues. His heart broke for his friends. His, his heart broke for people who were far away from God. And he remembered what he was saved from. He remembered who he used to be. The question that I would ask us today is, has our lives been so radically changed that we have that same approach? Like, Zach, how long are you going to stand in silence? I don't know. Let, let the question sink in for a second. Because we want to we fill the void with noise. We want to fill silence with just, well, with excuses. Well, let me read the question again. Has your life been radically changed in the same way that Paul has? Just let it sink in. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, get love for the souls of men. 
then you will not be whining about a dead dog or a sick cat. By the way, I would cry if my dog died. So, come on, Spurgeon. Or about the crochets of a family or about the little disturbances that John and Mary may cause by their idle talk. You have been delivered from petty worries. I need not further describe them. If you are concerned about the souls of men, get your soul full of great grief and your little griefs will be driven out. Does your soul grieve for people who are far from Jesus? Because I can let my soul grieve over some nonsense stuff that I shouldn't be worrying about. And when I worry about the small griefs in life, I forget to focus on what really matters. And that's about spreading the love, the grace, and the forgiveness of Jesus. So if I could challenge us with anything today, it would be this. Get love for the souls of people. There are people that we encounter every single day that are lost, dying, and going to hell. By the way, when your life is over, there's choice A and there's choice B. Choice A is heaven. Choice B is hell. There's nothing in between. How, how would our actions, how would our mindset, how would our lives shift if we truly believe that? We see it with Paul in the beginning of chapter nine. If I would, then I, if I could, then I would. If I could give my life, well, the reality of it is our lives aren't the sacrifice for humanity. Jesus was. So what are we called to do? We're called to spread his word. And spread his message. Step on some toes for a second, myself included. So if you don't want your toes stepped on, just pick your feet off the ground really quick. When's the last time you've shared the gospel message with someone? Oh, Zach, I haven't had time. Oh, Zach, I'm just, I'm not that type of person. I don't have that type of personality. There's no personality clause in the Bible. Oh, I'm an introvert and, and God, God knows he made me that way. He didn't, I don't care. Now listen, I've made excuses up before too. But if God is calling us to spread his word and to spread his message, are we really doing it or are we just standing idly by? Does your heart break for people? Does your heart break for individuals dying and going to hell? Let me read, let me drop down to verse 30. So Romans 9, verse 30 through 33. What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Church righteousness is obtained by faith, not by works. Contrary to popular belief, you cannot work your way to God. That's why the religious skeptics of the day, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. That's why humanity still stumbles over the stumbling stone, the stumbling stone being Jesus. By the way, Jesus is not impressed with your job title or your bank account. Je Jesus is not impressed by the size of the team that you lead. Jesus is not impressed with how many deals you close. Jesus is not impressed by the money that you acquired from venture capitalists for a job opportunity. Jesus is not impressed by how many houses you sold. He's not impressed by the good manners of your kids. He's not impressed by your decision to homeschool your kids and to keep them home. Jesus is not impressed by your lower interest rate. 
Well, I got a 3.85. Jesus doesn't care. This one's going to hurt, okay? This is really going to hurt. Jesus is not impressed by your lower golf handicap. I know that comes as a shock, but he's not impressed. Jesus is not impressed by my new pickleball paddle. I think it's nice though, Manny. It's nice. He's not impressed. He's not impressed by my new built shirt. I got some compliments, but he's not, he doesn't care. He's not impressed. I hear y'all laughing in the back. You can't laugh at my jokes back there. Like, Y'all might as well go ahead and come up here. Now everybody heard you. He's not, he's not impressed. He's not impressed by our works. Now the, the law is there for a purpose. Jesus himself said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The law is warranted. The law is needed. The law keeps us on track. But only one person was perfect and his name was Jesus. We're, we're not called to be perfect by following the law. We're called to have faith that Jesus is who he says he is. God's eyes are fixed on our faith, not our deeds. We're called to reject the world and to have faith in God. Think back. I told you I wanted to talk about the nation of Israel. Think back to the nation of Israel. The entire history of Israel is set in motion by them rejecting the world and following God. There's twice in scripture that we see this origination of a rejection that's an acceptance, a rejection of the world and an acceptance from God. And the first time that we see this is the rejection of Mesopotamia in the days of Abraham. The second time we see it is when Israel rejected uh, Egypt in the days of Moses. All, all of the worldly wisdom, all the worldly strength, all the worldly riches were found in ancient Mesopotamia and in ancient Egypt. But these cultural centers directly opposed the word of God. And the nation of Israel rejected that to follow God himself. But why is this pertinent to Paul's letter to Rome? I want to read an excerpt. The book's called Along Obedience in the Same Direction by Eugene Peterson. And he writes this. He says, so Israel said no and became a pilgrim people, picking a path of peace and righteousness through the battlefields of falsehoods and violence, finding a path to God through the maze of sin. And we know that Israel, in saying that no, that no to the world, and that yes to God, did not miraculously return to Eden and live in primitive innocence or mystically inhabit a heavenly city and live in supernatural ecstasy. They worked and played. They suffered and sinned in the world as everyone else did and as Christians still do. Think about that last sentence. Israel worked and played. They suffered and sinned. In the world as everyone else did and as Christians still do. Man, then can I encourage us to take heart and to have a little hope that if the nation of Israel said no to the world, yet they still struggled, they still fell short, they still made mistakes, they, they still continued to sin, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, I'm convinced and scripture confirms that God knows that we're going to sin. We're predestined to it. We were born in a, into a fallen world. God absolutely knows that we're going to sin. Again, predestined to it. But we're not predestined to our response to that sin. We can choose to put sin in the light and to have it eradicated. 
or we can choose to bury it and have it infect us. Why, why is it important? Why was Paul's heart breaking? Because Paul realized that people that he used to hang out with, people that used to be his colleagues and his friends, they were lost and on their way to hell. Now they would, they would put on the mask. They would act like everything was okay. They would hide their sin in the background and, and they would act as if they are good. Paul says, listen, if I, if I could, if I could remove myself, that you might have a relationship with God, then I would do it. But he realized he couldn't do that. So then he starts talking about this process of following Jesus. And part of that process is exposing sin. Part of that process is putting it in the light. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. You can't work your way to Jesus. You can't earn your way to Jesus. You can't pay your way to Jesus. Your tithe on Sunday morning does not get you access to Jesus. All right? Your good deeds don't give you more or less access to Jesus. Holding the door on the way out of the sanctuary does not give you more of an access to Jesus because you did a random act of kindness. Y'all remember when that was going around? Random act of kindness everywhere, you know? It's faith and faith alone. The apostle Mark actually writes about it in Mark chapter 10. And you'll, some of you will remember this, but about the rich young ruler. You remember the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I've kept all of your commandments. I've kept all the laws. I haven't sinned. I've kept everything. I just wanna follow you. And Jesus looks back at him. He says, great, sell it all and follow me. And the story goes on. He sold it all and followed Jesus. No, he didn't. He went away troubled and discouraged. I've kept the law, but he had more faith in his possessions and more faith in the things that he had opposed to having faith in Jesus. So he walked away troubled and discouraged. And I wonder how many people come into a church on a Sunday morning and walk away troubled and discouraged because they realize that they can't keep all the law. They can't keep all the commandments. Good news. Jesus doesn't expect you to but he expects you to have faith in him that when sin comes, you'll know how to respond. That when sin comes, you don't try to hide it. You don't try to ignore it. It's appropriate vulnerability. You let the right people know at the right time and you address the situation. Will it hurt? Will it sting? Absolutely it does. But Paul's starting this conversation in chapter nine and we'll see chapter 10 and we'll see chapter 11, but he starts this conversation and he says, listen, you have to have faith in God before you can do anything else. It's not about working your way to heaven, but it's about having faith and faith alone. The gospel is there to convict us, not to condemn us. Condemnation attempts to remove us from God's presence, to condemn us, to cast us out. But conviction causes us to turn towards God's presence. Remember I said that Christ came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. In the fulfilling of the law, when we place the law in front of us, we realize that it's there not to condemn us, but to convict us. A conviction for what? A conviction that we would turn from sin and face towards Jesus. That's the purpose of the law. Where does your faith come in? Well, you have to have faith that God's going to give you grace and mercy after you turn from sin. 
grace, grace is God giving us everything that we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us everything that we do deserve. We deserve to be separated from God for eternity. We, we deserve to spend eternity in hell, but God has mercy. And in that mercy, he sent his son named Jesus that you and I might be able to step into a relationship with him. He gave us that grace. Again, not by works, but by faith. Israel worked and played. They suffered and sinned in the world as everyone else did and as Christians still do. But Peterson goes on to write this, but they were now going someplace. So, so think about this, even though they sinned, even though they suffered, even though they worked and they played as everyone else did, they were now going someplace. They were going to God. The truth of God explained their lives. The grace of God fulfilled their lives. The forgiveness of God renewed their lives and the love of God blessed their lives. And he ends by saying this, in all these immigrant stories, there are mixed parts of escape and adventure. The escape from an unpleasant situation, the adventure of a far better way of life, free for new things, open for growth and creativity. Every Christian has some variation on this immigrant plot to tell. You and I are just immigrants on this plot called life. We're just passing through. And he ends by saying a leaving that develops into an arriving, a no to the world, that is a yes to God. Listen, while we are on this earth, we are gonna work and play, we're gonna stumble and sin. But in following Jesus, we are now going someplace. And when we say no to the world and yes to God, we're still going to experience all the things of life, but we're going someplace and that place is following Jesus. But following Jesus is a rejection that is also an acceptance. It's a rejection of the world to be accepted into the family of Christ. And in that family, truth is explained, grace is fulfilled, forgiveness is renewed and love is blessed. There's a truth in the word of God that as you dive into it again, I'm not here to give you your spiritual feel of the week. I'm here to point you in a direction of discovery that you might dive into this thing and experience truth for yourself. The grace that's in the Bible talks about a fulfilling that we will encounter when we spend time with Jesus. And that grace extends forgiveness for all of our past, all of our current and all of our future sin. And the love of God will bless your life far beyond your wildest imagination. Now we can choose to be like the religious skeptics that Paul was talking to. Or we can say, you know what? I'll play ball. I'll, I'll read this thing. I'll, I'll dive into it. I'll ask God to reveal himself to me. So for just a few more minutes, all across this room, if we could all stand, would you, be, would you be so bold that as we step back into this song, that you would ask God to continue to reveal himself to you?